Welcome to Sports Weekly with Ayaz Memon. Hey everybody, welcome to the latest episode of Sports Weekly with Ayaz Memon. As always, we've got a very action-packed show given there's a lot of action around the world. We'll talk about India's squad for the tour of South Africa. We'll talk about how Australia has once again demolished England in the opening Ashes test. There's also a lot of football to talk about with Barcelona failing to make the knockout stages of the Champions League for the first time in 17 years. To talk about that and also cover the big story that is Max Verstappen who's now an F1 world champion after an absolutely amazing win over Lewis Hamilton will be joined by Somil Arora. Also on this episode, we will have an ISL update by Siju Matthew. But first, here's Ayaz Memon, and we're talking about India's team for the South Africa tour. Welcome to the show, Ayaz. Thank you, Mr. Fantastic. Always a pleasure to be on the show. And uh, as we know, we've got this very important series coming up against South Africa. Important for many reasons, not the least because uh, we know that Virat Kohli has been replaced as white ball captain. So he's got red ball cricket still under his uh, purview. Uh, he's in charge there and he has to prove a point or two. Uh, not just for preserving his job, that's not what I'm saying, but you know he needs to take the team's agenda ahead. The World Championship, World Test Championship cycle has begun. India have done reasonably well against New Zealand at home, but it's always winning away from home that is important. So that's one aspect. It's important in terms of points also. The other is that India have never, ever beaten South Africa in South Africa. Never won the series there. Virat Kohli in his early years as captain in 2017 came close to that. We lost that series 1-2. We could have won one test match, but the batting failed. Uh, Virat, of course, succeeded uh, enormously. I mean, that's where his rise to eminence or started getting acknowledged as a great batsman from that series onwards. And then, of course, he made runs in Australia, in England, everywhere else. So this is an important series for him in terms of uh, re-establishing or reiterating his credentials as a captain and batsman. He's going through a lean patch and he obviously wants to come out of it fast enough. And not the least, of course, is uh, Rahul Ravid as, uh, as chief coach. He's going to be He's, he's going to be there for the overseas series for the first time in his stint. There's so many things. There are so many things that are happening in Indian cricket right now. And all of them uh, will be playing some part or the other in in, uh, in the series in South Africa. Uh, the spinners were doing well. Uh, there are some players who are injured. They are not going. The replacements were going to take their place. Will they do so well as to make the return of the other players difficult and so on. I think that this is going to be a, a series really to look forward to. So, interesting you bring up the spinners. I mean, there's only two spinners really, uh, two proper spinners, Ashwin and Jayant Yadav. The injured list includes two spinners or three actually, Ravindra Jadeja, Akshar Patel and Rahul Chahar. Now, had they not been injured, my guess is Ravindra Jadeja and Akshar Patel would definitely have made the squad. Yes, and along with Ashwin. Along with Ashwin. So, that would have been at least three spinners. Uh, do you think two, which is Ashwin and the other were enough? The playing in Centurion, Johannesburg and Cape Town. Joburg and Centurion typically faster pitches, but Cape Town could help? No, I, I think the, the strategy in uh, in uh, South Africa will largely be a pace-dominated attack. So, you've got Bumrah returning and Shami uh, Siraj is there. So, those three become certainties. There's Ashwin, uh, who's certainly going to play. Uh, you know, he is in the scheme of things, even in Test cricket, where... Rohit Sharma and Rahul Ravid are concerned. There is a there is a uh, possibility that they might actually play only four four bowlers. Now it really depends. Virat Kohli and Ravi Shastri were, 
you know, of the clear view that they needed five bowlers at all time. But historically, when you look at Indians playing overseas, Indian teams, they've had uh, four bowlers and beefed up the batting to to prevent batting collapses or get enough runs and so on. We'll have to wait and see. There is a good chance, of course, that uh, Jayant Yadav might also play because he's an all-rounder. So he gives you that little bowling option, uh, which, you know, becomes important uh, for, if, if for nothing, at least for, you know, relieving pressure uh, on uh, or physical pressure or the fatigue factor on on your regular bowlers. So uh, this is going to be an interesting challenge for uh, uh, for Virat and for David to come up with a bowling attack which is good enough to win matches because that's paramount. Uh, also, you must have a batting lineup which is strong enough to resist or you know not not cave in uh, because the south africans while they might look weak on batting they actually have a very strong bowling attack so you also need your batting to stand up absolutely uh, also the middle order we still seem to be going with pujara rahane and hanuma vihari is back after finding no favor for the home series but uh, if you look at the way they might line up is rohit sharma with i think kl rahul more than mayank agarwal followed by pujara kohli rahane and then you have Ayer or Vihari as a question mark. Pant will definitely be back. Uh, one of the spinners and the rest fast bowlers. Does that sound about right? Yeah, that could be it. I mean, you know, there is pressure on Pujara and Rahane to retain their places. I think it's almost like, you know, this is your last ch- chance, buddies. You better come good. Otherwise, uh, we, we, we've got options there. And the options are there. There's Shreyas Ayer. Uh, there's Hanuma Vihari who's come back. And remember, Mayank Agarwal or... KL Rahul can also bat at number three if needed. If Rahul and Rohit open or if Mayank and Rohit open, then Rahul can bat at number three. Rahane has also been deposed as vice-captain of the team. So, it's not uh, going to be easy for him. Uh, it's Rohit Sharma who is now the, the vice-captain of the test team because he's a certainty. And you want players who are certainties to be in, position, in leadership position. So, there's a clear signal to Rahane, you know, an equally clear signal to Pujara that uh, the competition is hotted up. Either you shape up or you ship out. Absolutely. And I think that's only fair. Well, moving on to more cricketing action. Uh, the Ashes kicked off earlier last week. And not much has changed there, has there. England got an absolute hammering. Uh, two major questions here, okay? Forget everything else. On a pitch like the Gabba, why would you win the toss and bat first? And why would you not play Broad and Anderson, who are probably your two most experienced and the greatest bowlers of all time? Yeah, I think I'll take the second question first because that's the more relevant. Uh, there is an old truism that wins the toss and start to choose to bat. So that may be one of the reasons why, you know, runs on the board always give you a sense of security uh, and especially on result-oriented pitches. Now, that apart, I think the fact of England going into this match without Anderson and Broad, I could have understood, you know, there's a rotation policy in place and you uh, Anderson is 40, Broad is two, three years younger. He's also long in the tooth, so to speak. He's no spring chicken. But to not take both was a travesty. It just defied any cricket logic that I could think of. Uh, why would you not want to play the guys who've taken between them, what, more than 1,100 wickets or something? 1,156. 1,156. You know, and you, how can you keep them out uh, and say, oh, but we can play them later. But you have to make sure that you don't lose the first match. And you've been blasted out in the first match. Yes, there was a phase, there was a spell when England looked like they, they might, uh, you know, put up a stirring fight back. That was when Joe Root and David Malan were putting up a very spirited century partnership in the second innings. But it was just 
too good to last for the whole duration. You know, and the next on the fourth morning, things just crumbled and they lost by a massive margin. So I think that tactically, England made a massive boo-boo in leaving out Anderson and Broad. Yes, Anderson's record at the GABA isn't very impressive. But even so, you expect him, a bowler of his experience and class, to be of greater value than some of the others who were who were uh, included in the match, and so too broad similarly. So I think that was a big case uh, for against what what England did, winning the toss and batting first, as I mentioned. There is hope in in Australia visiting teams hope that if they get three twenty three twenty five, then they end the game. Though again, when you look at you know matches in the past, the GABA pitch starts playing better on the second and third days than it does on the first. But most crucial is to get past the first session, session and a half, the first two sessions maybe on day one without too many casualties. That didn't happen for England. And that was more or less sealed the fate of the match. And I think the Australians also came uh, with a vengeance and also with new sense of spirit and energy with Pat Cummins as the captain. They're emerging from a controversy with Tim Payne, who's not playing this match uh, or not playing the series, I think. And uh, don't forget, the last time they played at the GABA, actually they lost. So the, you know, it was the Fort Knox for Australia, but it didn't prove to be invincible against India. So they had a lot to prove to themselves, and I thought they did it splendidly, uh, especially with David Warner getting runs, uh, Labushain getting runs, and of course that amazing knock played by Travis Head, who too, remember, was a uh, was a marginal selection. It could it could have been Usman Khwaja instead of him just inched ahead of him and seized that opportunity. And then, of course, these fast bowlers, Pat Cummins, Mitch, Mitch Stark, uh, Mitchell Stark and Josh Hazelwood, you know, it's a fearsome trio. The only team which has actually withstood them on Australian grounds has been India in the in the past series or past couple of series. And that says a lot about India's batting, but it is of no, this is of no relief to England who seem to be, uh, you know, in line for a whipping again in this Ashes series. Yeah, I mean, do you really see them coming back from this? I know India did. We had a terrible start at Adelaide and came back to win the series just, what, 10, 11 months ago. But do you think this England team has the ability to recover from this loss and turn it uh, into you know their advantage? Looks difficult. The only player looking completely world-class in this England team to me is Joe Root. He's having a magnificent year as, as a batsman. Uh, you know, he's in he's in line to become the highest scorer ever in a calendar year. We'll have to wait and see how he plays in the next two tests before the year ends. But even in the in the second innings knock here, uh, he was in sublime form. And apart from him, I don't think that the England teams look very impressive. Uh, you know, the other batsmen especially are looking like good 20, 25, 30 run players, not somebody or not players who can make hundreds or 150s. Yes, David Malan had a good knock. But Nothing of the consistency that Joe Root has shown. And I think the crucial element here or the factor here is going to be how Ben Stokes uh, plays from here. He's too good a player to keep out. He didn't have a great match with the bat or ball. But unless he starts getting match-winning form, which means he has to pick up wickets and also score runs and you know display the magic that he did in 2019, though that was at home, uh, England could be struggling very, very badly because you can't survive Forget about winning. You can't survive playing Australia in Australia with just one world-class player uh, playing to potential. Absolutely. Well, nonetheless, that's uh, a lot of cricket yet to be played. It was just one test in. And uh, I do expect England to put up a little bit of a fight. But 
uh, as things stand right now, it's definitely a win for Australia. Uh, will it be five zero four one three two? Time will tell. Moving on, we've got a bit of an issue happening with the whole captaincy situation in Indian cricket in their areas. Is there any truth to this, or is this just gossip? No, I think. Look, I think it's been badly handled by the BCCI. I mean, they showed very poor form, uh, and I'll tell you how and why. I I don't think that you know there is any major issue about whether Rohit Sharma should have been made ODI captain or not. I think once you know the Virat decided not to accept or not to captain in T20s, he had left the field open. You can't have one captain for T20, another for Test matches and ODIs. That becomes a little complex. So you have convention says okay, you know, white ball captain and a red ball captain. That's the if you want to split the captaincy. But the manner in which it was done, I mean, you put out a press release where you don't even mention a word about, a word of thanks to Virat, who's got an absolutely fabulous record as batsman and captain. He's not won titles, that's true, but he's got the best win percentage by any Indian captain. You know, it just seems such a puerile thing to do, such a churlish thing for the BCC. Of course, the next day, uh, they came out with a statement and then they had damage control by Saurav Ganguly, which actually made in my opinion made the issue even more farcical because uh, what Gasolov Ganguly came and explained is that oh but we had told Virat not to quit the T20 captaincy so was was the thinking in the board that had Virat not quit the T20 captaincy he would have retained all you know captaincy in all three formats that means is uh, Rohit Sharma captain by default I think it's demeaning even to Rohit Sharma so Rohit Sharma has proved his credentials as a batsman and as a, as a captain in whatever opportunities he's got. He's won five IPL titles. Whenever he's led India in the Asia Cup, in ODIs, he's won, etc. And as it happens, his rise to eminence has coincided with Virat Kohli hitting a barren phase in his batting career. So Virat has not had a... The last couple of years haven't been good for him. They've been brilliant for, for uh, Rohit. And I can also understand the board saying, let's ease the pressure on Virat. Let him focus on his batting. All that is fair. But what prevents you from, when you make the change, you say, okay, you know, thanks a lot. You've done extremely well well for us. First of all, frankly, the ODI team wasn't announced. That's to be announced later. So they could have maybe even made this announcement distinct from the test squad announcement. If you've read the press release as I did, it was to announce the squad, test squad for, for South Africa. And the last para of it is saying, but the ODI, oh, now the ODI captaincy goes to Rohit Sharma, who will also be vice-captain of the uh, the test team. So it's a very brusque manner. It's it almost like an afterthought. Uh, okay, let's add also this bit. Rather than saying it should be more proactive and acknowledge uh, what Virat has done. I think that's what riled me. That whatever it might be, you know, I mean, he was the board, the BCCI made him the poster boy, not just of Indian cricket, but international cricket for five years. Now, whatever may be the reason that you, you don't, you know, you all don't see eye to eye, the BCCI, if that is the case, you still have to acknowledge his contribution as a player. That's the job as the board. You know, it doesn't matter uh, what the current dynamics may be in the relationship with the player concerned. So that's something, I mean, look at what happened with Tim Payne. He went through a far major controversy than anybody else that we can I can think of in the last couple of years. And yet, the Australian Cricket Board thanked him for coming to their aid and for doing, you know, after Steve Smith uh, had to lose, uh, lose his captaincy and be away from cricket for a year, uh, thanked Tim Payne in the, in, in the middle of that controversy for his contribution. And that's what the job of the 
you know, board is. I mean, you know, that's where I think the Indian cricket board has still a lot to learn. Well, uh, whatever it is, I think Virat Kohli is too important a player for Indian cricket, at least for another five or six years. You know, he's still got a lot to give the, uh, the sport and the teams that he's leading out there. Well, that was the cricket on the show. It's time now to move on and talk about sports that are much faster. And we're very clearly talking about Formula One. Joining us to talk about that crazy year-end race from Abu Dhabi is Somil Arora. Hey, Somil, welcome to the show. What was that race, man? It was crazy. What a finish to the season. Tell us more about everything. There's just so much to talk about, isn't there? Oh, my word, Mr. Fantastic. Uh, it's been a night after the race has been done and I'm still feeling the same intensity. The heart rate is still pounding. Yeah, I mean, you literally can feel your body parts shaking and, and that continued on for hours after the race was done. This was, in all honesty, one of the best finals to any F1 World Championship ever and it could potentially even top the fable 2008-1 in terms of drama depending on which side of the fence you are on. Is it Verstappen? Is it Hamilton? And for Max Verstappen fans, the news is great. The news is jolly. He is provisionally the 2021 Formula One World Champion. And in in football terms, Mr. Fantastic, a really interesting way to explain this would be that the scores were nil-nil at the start, at the final race. And Lewis Hamilton's team eventually got a controversial penalty, which they scored to go 1-0, but then they battered six goals and were leading 7-0 in the final couple of minutes until the referee said, wait, 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 wait. There is going to be a golden goal. The next goal wins and Verstappen's team scored that and they won the world championship. It's just like that. And you might be thinking, well, it's a bit too unfair. Why did the next goal win? Thing is, the race was going perfectly fine until we saw Nicholas Latifi's Williams crash in the final couple of laps That brought out the safety car and the safety car nullifies everything in the race. What Mercedes did was they made a decision not to take a pit stop at that final lap because there were lapped cars. There were six to eight lapped cars between Max Verstappen and Lewis Hamilton. And they thought, well, if it's only going to go down to one last showdown lap and if these cars are in the middle we won't need fresh rubber and we won't have to compromise on track position because remember, when the safety car came in, Hamilton's Mercedes was six seconds ahead of Max Verstappen. So had they gone for tyres, Red Bull wouldn't have gone for tyres and they would have had track position. So they didn't want to risk that. But eventually, the race director pulled off a classic swerve at the end. He said all the six lapped cars, by the way, not all the lapped cars, only the lapped cars between Lewis and Max were allowed to go past. And we had a one-lap shootout where Verstappen had fresh rubber and he seized the moment. He passed Hamilton and he became the first ever Dutch Formula 1 world champion. And he brought Red Bull their first world championship since 2013. And in all honesty, there was there was a lot of things that happened before that. We saw a crazy first lap incident where Max Verstappen sent one down the inside of Lewis Hamilton. But Hamilton backed out and he bailed because they were a bit too close. But I feel there should have been a penalty here because Hamilton got the escape road and went straight on. But the FIA, the steward, said, that well, he slowed down enough, which in my personal opinion, I don't think he did. So there should have been a penalty there for the first lap. So Hamilton was able to carry on. Verstappen was just not able to catch up. They tried with his teammate, by the way. Sergio Perez in the middle of the race tried desperately hard to hold up Lewis Hamilton. But he could only do that for a couple of laps. Lewis was on fire. And many Mercedes fans 
I don't know, they, uh, they, they might feel very somber and, and very frustrated this morning. And even the team themselves, to be honest, because the circumstances in which the things happened eventually, far too controversial, but all things considered, Max Verstappen, a brand new world champion, someone who's been by, I think it's only fair to say he has been the more consistent driver throughout the season. His performances have always been up there. And here's a stat that will absolutely baffle you. Throughout the 2021 season, in all the races that Max Verstappen has finished, he's not finished lower than second place. Now, if that isn't a driver worthy of winning the World Championship, I don't know who is. Shame that only one driver can win the World Championship in the end. But my word, Verstappen, the Dutch army, new world champion. There is such a buzz around Formula 1 right now. The sport is only growing, Mr. Fantastic. The sport is only growing. So, tell me, with everything and the way it ended, was Mercedes justified in complaining about, you know, how the race and how the stewards handled uh, the safety car issue? That's That's a tough call, honestly. And Mercedes have gone on and tried to dispute that. Now, as I mentioned in the first part of it, Uh, we let the six to eight, I mean, I'm not sure of the exact number, I think uh, somewhere around that margin, we let those cars between Lewis and Max go past. Officially in the rules, in the sporting regulations of Formula One, and it's crazy that it boils down to this at the very end, because this whole season has been influenced so much by penalties and decisions made by the stewards and whatnot. Eventually, the rule says that any lapped cars, not all, any lapped cars between the leader and the car behind will be allowed to let past and only then will the safety car be able to restart the race. Red Bull Racing said that any does not mean all when Mercedes protested this decision. But it it does, in all honesty, Mr. Fantastic, look like the TV director, uh, the race director, my apologies. (laughs) The race director wanted to become the TV director in a way because it, it looked like a decision made for TV. I don't mind it. That was such an amazing finish. Because a one-lap shootout to decide the Formula 1 World Championship, that's how close it was. You literally couldn't split up Max and Lewis the whole year. But Mercedes will feel hard done by, and I think they have a reason to feel hard done by. Because this was not 100% according to the rules. In the first protest lodged by Mercedes, which the stewards promptly rejected, by the way, they said that, well, the second rule overrides it, which means that when the message of the safety car is going to come in comes up, the first rule can be partially overrided. Well, that's been the decision for now, but the Mercedes are taking the decision to the higher power, to the FIA court right now to try and protest it. But let's be honest. Is it is it unfair on them uh, considering the final lap? Yes, it is. Was the first decision on the first lap unfair towards Red Bull? In my opinion, yes. It, it, Hamilton didn't quite slow down enough. Do I want to see the championship decided in a court meeting in Paris two months later? I don't want to see that happen. We want it to be settled right here on the track. So, yeah, all things considered, Mercedes a bit hard done by, but we don't want to see this to go to court. Nobody wants to see this going to court. Unless, of course, your name is Team Mercedes or Toto Wolf or, or Lewis Hamilton. And eventually, the most dramatic part of the race was when the race director, Michael Massey, who's been under so much controversy so far this year, just had to respond to Toto Wolf, the Mercedes team principal, who was understandably fuming. He was actually ready to break anything and everything in sight. And the race director, rather interestingly, much like a Hollywood movie, turned around on the radio with the sunset coming up, with all the things surrounding him, with the intensity building up, said the most chilling radio message for Mercedes. He said, this is motor racing, Toto. We are going car racing. (laughs) 
Now, that's that's a bit too dramatic in my opinion, but that's what we did. We went car racing and Mercedes will try to find this right down to the very end. But as I said, nobody wants to see this settled in court. Nobody wants to see this happen two months later. Verstappen, well, he saw the opportunity and grabbed it by both hands. As a long-time fan, do you think this is the best season in a very long time? I mean, it's come down to the wire as close as it can get. Literally, Mr. Fantastic. The sport is growing in leaps and bounds right now. I'll give you a bit of an example. When I used to watch Formula 1 back in the day, and I've been watching literally since I was five years old, I had nobody in school who was interested in Formula 1, nobody in my circles, nobody on social media, nobody anywhere that you go. But now, everyone around me is organizing race screenings. And that's not just me. We had, I think, around 20, 25 odd screenings in the country, with each with over 100 people watching live. And that's only the screenings. There are millions of people now finally watching the sport thanks to the documentary Drive to Survive. So many people watching live. And when you give them a finale like this one, I don't see a reason why they won't be permanent fans. Formula One is the most rapidly growing sport in the world in terms of the numbers right now, in terms of social media, in terms of viewership. It's in a situation where it's never quite been in and the credit has to go towards Liberty Media because they've absolutely transformed the media side of the sport, which is why the sport is doing so well right now, which is why on Sports Weekly, it's the second thing we're discussing and on the third or fourth, that's because Formula One is just amplifying itself to whole new levels. And I wouldn't be surprised if if the Indian market tends to grow three or four folds in the coming years because after a finale like this one, who wouldn't want to watch Formula One, right? And for all of us fans who've been watching from the very beginning or from as early as we possibly could, it just feels so warm to see that people around us are recognizing that, well, the sport that you watch that used to be full of boffins and nerds is not just a sport full of boffins and nerds. It's a sport that can offer so much drama more than, no, I wouldn't say more than any other sport, but at times... Anything can happen in motor racing and in Abu Dhabi, anything did really happen in motor racing. So, my word, I I feel great. I feel really optimistic about the signs. And with Max Verstappen, a young world champion at the forefront, driving car number one next year, it's a good way to begin. It's, It's a start of a new era, I would say. Premier League, yes, lots of action going on here, as always. It might play second fiddle to the world of Formula 1 for this week, but trust me, the results were big, the matches were big, but uh, not all of them were of the same intensity and the same quality that you might say for the Premier League. And let's talk about the top results firstly. Manchester City beating Wolves in, honestly, such a boring and dull match. It was very... Evenly matched out in the first half with City trying to dominate and Wolves playing well according to the counter-attacking strategy. But it all kicked off in the second half. And I don't even know what to say about the red card that Raul Jimenez had. Oh, Jimenez? Jimenez? Again? Call it what you want to. But it was really funny. Jimenez got two yellow cards in the space of 31 seconds. He was sent off for Wolves, firstly, because he gave away a free kick. And secondly, he tried to block said free kick. And so eventually, within 31 seconds, he was out. And Wolverhampton Wanderers were absolutely hapless. They were lost. They couldn't quite do anything to counter it. City eventually got a penalty thanks to a handball from Wamutinho. It hit his armpit. So we are checked it and said that, right, it's got to be a penalty. And Raheem Sterling scored it to become a part of the 100 goals club in the Premier League. A place where he truly deserves his place, to be honest. He has been phenomenal over the last couple of years. But City win that. And with that, their advantage at the top, well, it's just up there. They are 
really in a flow right now. One point ahead of Liverpool, two points ahead of Chelsea. Life is good if you're Manchester City right now. The other results though. West Ham drawing against Burnley. Sluggish nil-nil match, really crazy. And it's a bit of a surprise. West Ham are turning into this rather mercurial team that can beat the greats on their day, but really slow down against the smaller teams. And Burnley held them out on their own at home. And West Ham, well, I wouldn't say they look toothless, but they lack that X factor that they somewhat seem to be having in front of the bigger team. So maybe, uh, maybe the old theory that teams perform better when the teams are better against them. So, I don't know, West Ham may be lacking momentum and lacking motivation against the smaller teams. Who knows? Then, the match with Chelsea and Leeds, 3-2. And this Mr. Fantastic was so dramatic. It started off with Leeds getting a penalty and scoring it in the first half. So they got the one day lead. Mason Mount equalised to make it 1-1 at half-time. Then Jorginho got another penalty for Chelsea, which he scored. Then there was Joe Gerlhardt for Leeds, who scored to make it 2-2. Let's be honest, it's Leeds United. It's always going to be a high-scoring match. You're never going to get a dull match with them. And Chelsea, they won it so late. They won it at 90-plus-4. They finally got that penalty at the end. And when Jorginho's got the ball in the penalty box, he's going to score. There's no doubting it. And so, in a match that probably was the best and the most dramatic of the entire weekend, probably lacking a little bit in football quality, one might say, they just got edged out. Lee's just got edged out. And Chelsea will be feeling really lucky at the very end. And this brings out a very interesting stat that Opta have pointed out, in fact. Six penalties were scored in the Premier League this weekend. And only once there's actually been more netted on a single day in the Premier League's history, which was seven on the 5th of February 2011. Long time ago. So crazy how many penalties were awarded this weekend. And as I said at the start, it's not the best weekend in terms of football quality. But lots of goals, lots of drama, good TV. I think we'll, we'll take it. Arsenal beat Southampton 3-0. United was sluggish in their match against North City where they won 1-0. But seriously, it was a bad performance. North City were far, far better. And in Steven Gerrard's homecoming at Liverpool with Aston Villa, Liverpool eventually edged them out 1-0. And guess what? This match was also won by a Mohamed Salah penalty. Eventually, as I said to you, Manchester City are your leaders. Liverpool are second. Chelsea third. Things look tight in the Premier League and the fixtures are only going to get more tricky because we're coming towards Christmas. We're coming towards Boxing Day. And as it happens always, there are so many matches coming up. We had a few matches on Saturday and Sunday. All of a sudden, we have another match week which continues from Wednesday to Thursday to Friday. Then immediately, there's a match on Saturday. A week's break and then the teams come back on Sunday for Boxing Day. After that, there's matches on the 27th and 28th. Immediately, there's another match that begins at the 28th and then goes on to the 30th. Then there's so many matches on the 1st and the 2nd. It's a bit unfair, let's be honest. For the players, it's very, very unfair. And they get a couple of weeks break after the 3rd of January until the 15th. But to say that it's a new problem would also be unfair. It happens every single year. And by this stage, the teams sort of have to be used to it. But it's a shame that they can't quite spend Christmas with their families properly. It's a shame that they have to play so many matches in such a crunch period of time. And injuries often tend to happen here. So if you're a fan of any Premier League team, watch out. There is a chance that one or two big players might be injured and that could throw the whole league into jeopardy. Ah, Barcelona. Ah. Let's talk about them, shall we? In the Champions League, it's the first time in 17 years, as you mentioned, Mr. Fantastic, that they are not in the knockout stage. And let's ask ourselves a really honest question. 
Did they deserve to be in the knockout stages after their performances? Let's be honest, they were always going to lose to Bayern Munich. Considering how Bayern Munich have been playing so far this year, there's no chance that this Barcelona, shabby or not, would be able to beat them. In this match as well, Bayern, well, they... I wouldn't say they were dominant, but they really imposed their style. And Barcelona did try to fight back. And signs of improvement do exist under Xavi. But it's Bayern Munich. You're not going to beat them eventually. They won 3-0. And let me tell you a really scary stat. In this Champions League group stage, Bayern have scored 22 goals. They've only let pass three. And they've won all of their matches. This team, Mr. Fantastic, this team. And Barcelona are out. Eventually, it's not the Bayern matches that took them out of the league, actually. It's, it's, the, it's the matches against Benfica that were the real problem, where they firstly lost 3-0, then they drew 0-0 against them. That actually will sting the most. And it's a new low, but if you're a Barcelona fan, the best we can actually say is, that's the lowest you can go, right? Well, I mean, how much worse can it get for Barcelona right now? There's a new manager... Xavi, who's trying to impose his own style, who's trying to get something better into Barcelona. So let's wait and watch it. It can't really get worse than that. But full credits to all the other teams, full credits to Bayern for the way they've played out. Eventually, they seem to be favourites for this Champions League, but there could be surprises. Well, a lot has happened since the last time we spoke about ISL Roundup. This is what the points table looks like. Mumbai City on the top spot with 12 points. They've had back-to-back high-goal-scoring victories against ATK MB, Bengaluru FC and Jamshedpur FC. While Odisha FC are on the second spot who had a goal-fest against East Bengal that saw a 6-4 victory to themselves. They lost against Kerala Blasters and they won against Northeast. Jamshedpur FC, who continue to impress us with their performance, drew against Hyderabad, won against ATK MB and lost against Mumbai City. Now, Hyderabad sit on the fourth position with the only team to beat Mumbai City FC, drew against Jamshedpur and won against Bengaluru FC. There's only one point difference between the second, third and fourth position team. Good news for FC Goa fans as they managed to get their first victory against East Bengal. Now, that makes East Bengal the last team on the points table. Kerala Blaster fans also are jubilant because they won their first game against Odisha and sit at the seventh spot. Now, ATK MB have a lot to do. They have slipped to the sixth position and Habaz has a task at hand. While teams like BFC will have to buck up really soon to make an impact this season. Now, Chennai are on the fifth. They are level with points with Hyderabad and sit a point behind Jamshedpur FC and they are soon knocking the door of the top four. Now, considering the nature of ISL, anything can happen. But what looks certain is Mumbai City FC's dominance. But can they continue is the question. Well, that's all from me on this week's ISL Roundup. Until next time, keep watching ISL and don't forget to tune in to the Totally Indian Football Show for all things Indian football. Well, thanks so much, Samil, Siju, Ayaz. It's been a crazy week of sport all around. We've got a new Formula One world champion. Uh, things are pretty much the same in Australia on the cricket front. But, well, let's look forward to more action next week. And we look forward to all of you joining us. Remember to subscribe to the show wherever you're listening to us now so you're updated of every new episode that we release. Thanks and have a great week. Thank you, Mr. Fantastic. See you next week. <laughs>